0: Hello, and welcome to the Disability, Education, and Society podcast. This is a podcast for collective learning and unlearning in the struggle for intersectional liberation. We focus on educational realms, expanding to other societal areas. We share our stories as academics, as well as those of our featured guests, including disability activists involved with multifaceted dimensions of systems equity, self-determination efforts, anti-ableist, and anti-racist liberation. Join us as co-conspirators. For this episode, it is such an honor to have Dr. Ryan Perry join the DES podcast. Dr. Perry is a senior lecturer in disability studies at Eastern Washington University. He received his PhD in disability studies from the University of Illinois in Chicago with a certificate in gender and women's studies in spring 2014. His research and teaching focused on the implications of moments in which the meaning of disability and our relation to it is an open question. Outside of academia, he was an active member of the disability community in Spoken, Washington.
1: You were talking about how you came to disability studies.
2: Sure. Well, it was interesting. I was, I was doing a master's degree in philosophy and we read, uh, we were reading Heidegger and I was, um, I was struck by one particular passage that uh, said, you know, all perception is all perception is based on a foundation of normal perception. Now that's not a quote, but that was the gist of the passage. And I and I remembered thinking, well now what does that say about someone like me who has a significant visual impairment or other people who perceive or engage with the world in a, non, a non-standard or non-presumed standard way. Um, so, and I, and I, and I remembered it was the first time I really held on to a, to a question, uh, while I was engaging with, with reading, you know, and I went into my class and I brought it up and everybody, all the other students in the class, all the cisgender, uh, white male students in the class said, "Well, well, well, Heidegger didn't mean that. And I said, "Well, first of all, what is the that that you think he didn't mean, and what did he mean in that case?" So that that really got that really sparked something in me, and I and I wrote about it for that for, for a first seminar paper, and then I wrote about it for the second one, uh, using Merleau Ponty and other other philosophers. And I was walking with my advisor. It had to have been the spring of two thousand three. And he said, you know, I know you want to go get a PhD, because I did. And he said, well, what about disability studies? And like most people in 2003, I said, well, well, what's that? And he says, "I, I don't know either, but look into it. So I did. And I found the PhD program in disability studies at University of Illinois, Chicago. And I took a year to do something else, but I, I applied to that, got into that, and went there. And I realized that other whole discipline were asking these kinds of questions that had, you know, kept me up uh that one spring night. Um, and you know, and obviously I've found, you know, friends and colleagues like the like the two of you who don't say, oh, well, you're your questions are irrelevant. You know, you're like, no, your questions are interesting and we want to, we want to wonder that as well. So I've, that's how I, that's the long story for how I got into disability studies. Now I am a, uh, the program director and the senior lecturer in disability studies at Eastern Washington University in Spokane, Washington.
3: Well, we're really honored to have you with us, Ryan. Um... It's a conversation, the conversation today where we are gonna have is, is really valuable for all sorts of uh, audiences, um, people who are interested in philosophy for sure. But I, I hope that also in a more practical sense for people who are into many other fields, uh, teaching really? um, at any level from preschool to uh, doctoral students, doctoral professors, and also uh, fields like health or some of the more practical fields connected to even things like human resources and all the things that make corporations and enterprises run their their course.
1: We are, again, as Alexis mentioned, so honored to have you here in our Disability Education and Society podcast. And we love the introduction of you and disability studies. And we, we have a set of questions we want to ask you. Uh, but before we do, I, I, if you wouldn't mind just sharing with us a little bit about how, how you conceptualize the term ableism and disability studies. I think that will help uh, folks just to kind of ground themselves into this conversation.
2: Sure. Well, again, I wanted to say thank you. Thank you both for having me today. I'm really, I'm really pleased and honored uh, to be a part of things. And, and I, uh, and I can't wait to become a regular listener and viewer of the podcast. We're excited doing good work. It's interesting, right? Because I think ableism is, it still feels new, right? I know, obviously, you know, we in disability studies and in in disability and c- communities, we've sort of known about this forever. Um, but it's been extremely interesting to me to see it appear in more mainstream, non-academic circles, which it does these days. it's 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 recognizable. So what I am, the way I'm framing it in this essay that i'm that I've written about about ableism, as atmosphere is, yes, it is, like everybody says, it is the unspoken, critically, uncritically thought biases and prejudices that simultaneously favor a non-disabled body-mind and disfavor anything that falls outside that narrow ring. And I'm particularly interested in well, how does it feel? And what is ableism when we can't point to it concretely and say that right there, that that practice or action is ableist, but when instead we feel it, we sense it. And in turn, it is how all of us make sense of the world around us of whatever we're doing, for example, well, well, in the classroom, certainly we could say, well, no, this practice is ableist. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. But more than that, how does the, the learning environment happen in a way that can be characterized as ableist beyond the identification of specific things or specific parts of it. I don't know if I've gone too far with my initial response to your question.
3: Well, I'd I'd like to dwell on something you just said, Brian, uh, as a a way to introduce my next question. I think there is something very relational in this idea that ableism at the same time favors the non-disabled world and disfavors the world of the disabled so even if people are not thinking about this they are relating right
2: to yeah.
3: disability in ableism itself in in sort of a mutual interconnection there that's very interesting and and you emphasized the idea of feeling one of the the elements that motivated me to invite you um, to converse with us about the, this podcast is this idea of relational ontology, especially in terms of how in Latin America we conceptualize it as sentipensante. And, and I, I want to explain for the audience that the word sentipensante uh, comes from two words, two verbs in Spanish the word verb sentir, which is to feel, and pensar, which is to think. Sentir. Y pensadas, sensing and thinking, and I think it's interesting that the word in Spanish, sentipensante, privileges the feeling, the sensing before the thinking. So it it de-emphasizes the rational, the methodical, the pre-planned, and it's more about like what you said, sensing an atmosphere, sensing a smell or The the way you relate to what happens around you, whoever is with you or without you, the way you relate to presences and absences, etc. So my next question is really around this issue of relationality, the relational ontology you know i, I basically want to ask you how do you think it connects to disability itself and perhaps if you have a couple of i like to use the word counter stories to illustrate your your argument the way you're thinking about relational ontology and sentipensence stuff with respect to disability
2: Yes, well let me let me start with two examples that i use in this in this particular essay i've only just relatively recently come across um, the the idea of Santa pensar and Santa um But immediately, I loved it, it helps um, me, I think a lot of us in disability studies, think and talk about everything that we've been thinking and talking about, but but differently. And I would say in a more robust way. Um, like I said before, what is ableism? when we can't necessarily point to concrete things or or explicit nameable identifiable actions or behaviors. So let me give the first example that I use in the essay is um, a few years ago, my wife and I were effectively walking down the street. Uh, I, I use a white cane. She has cerebral palsy and she uses a mobility scooter. And we were it was it was the first or one of the first sunny days of spring, we had at the time, a six month old daughter. So we were, let's say, very eager to get outside by ourselves. Um, And we were just really we was really enjoying the walk and the weather and everything. And then and then as we were walking, we noticed a woman uh, up ahead and as we got closer, things changed. And we just, and we talked about it since, we just knew something, something was happening, something was going to happen. As we crossed paths with the woman, you know, we say, you know, good morning. And she she said, you know, good morning. And then we passed, and she followed, and she said, eventually, after a few feet, you know, she says, I just have to say, you guys are awesome. Wow. And, you know, and my wife, being being who she is, said, actually, we're assholes, <laughs> and and we're not, but she was just trying to counter right, the assumption. You know, the woman said, oh, excuse me, what? What?" she asked me, what did she say? And I said, oh, never mind. <laughs> um, and she, but she's still with us. She's still following us. She says, well, listen, um, can I take your picture? And we very quickly said, no, you cannot. And and she, tr- not listening, I guess, or not hearing us, she says, well, well, you see, I'm an at-home care nurse and I work with a lot of disabled people. And I think it would do them good to see you guys to see that you people like you are out and about, and you know, we said, well, that makes it even worse. Now you definitely can't take our picture, and and we, you know, I, we were actually on our way to a disability rights meeting, and so we said, you know what, Google this local organization, maybe somebody there will let you take their picture. That, or at the very least, that's what your clients might need to know about. Um, and we we left as quickly as we could. We got back into the groove of the day uh, of our walk, but it, it was definitely disruptive and stuck with me. I've thought and talked about that experience for a few years now. And it's interesting, as I tell it to disabled friends and colleagues, they often will immediately know what's about to happen or very quickly commiserate and roll their eyes or groan you know, express that connection when I tell it to other people, they might say, oh, well, I I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that's awful. And yet other people will say, well, okay, why couldn't she take your picture? And so as I try to, to explain, well, here's why they she couldn't take our picture. And here's why even asking it or wanting to do it is a problem. You know, we can't help but bring ableism in it's like that old commercial from the 80s where's the beef you know where's the ableism it's everywhere it's all over that situation it's all over to me it's all over that example and yet very hard to pin down and say when did the ableism begin when did it end what exactly where was it what was it it was the whole thing. It was the whole situation. And it began, if that even matters, as soon as we felt it. Probably before it, because as I'm telling it now, I'm thinking, well, clearly it wasn't just when we felt it. It was when she felt there's two disabled people. Oh, I wonder if I can take their picture. Oh, this would be great. Right? I don't, I don't know. I can never know. That is what she thought or felt, but it seems reasonable. And more
0: importantly, it makes sense. Hi there, while we intend to make our podcast as accessible as possible, we ask those that have the financial means to support us by subscribing as a patron to our podcast for as little as $5 a month. To subscribe, go to our website, disabilityed.podbean.com. By subscribing as a patron, you will help ensure that we can continue to create and share new episodes while supporting other co-conspirators who face financial and health difficulties. For those with financial difficulties, please connect with us about obtaining a free copy of our books and or engaging in additional conversations with us. You can also support the show by hitting the follow button, share this podcast with among your network, and leave us a comment in positive rating. Your support means so much.
3: Yeah, that that definitely, I mean, it's very interesting what, what you say, um, Ryan, about the whole experience being ableism, because it, it makes it much harder to pinpoint and much harder to define. But it also emphasizes the relationality of the whole thing. It's perhaps the fact that it was spring, a sunny day, all of that put, could probably come into the mixture. And you would say that there is nothing ableist about that. But the disruption of a family's strolling it, even mm-hmm. those kinds of basic rights, if you if you know what I mean, it's it's almost like a human rights kind of thing that it's supposed to be in in some ways even sacred. but um, for people with disabilities just because they're visibly disabled, it becomes a target, right? A relational target for these kinds of things.
2: It certainly can. as you' were talking, I couldn't help but think, well that what' isn't it isn't a target a target? What's a relational target? And I think that's exactly, I mean, the answer is, re- requires thinking and feeling, feeling and thinking, uh, pensai, to, to make sense of, because it's going to shift and change and unfold or accrue, depending on all sorts of conditions.
1: Brian, I'm wondering if you go back to this notion that you shared, as you shared this with your friends and you you mentioned those with disabilities immediately connected. Those without disabilities kind of were in different kind of camps, if you will. Ooh. How have your like you you mentioned this occurred a few years ago? How like like this idea of center Pense, How how has that maybe changed um, in in this time that you've you written about it, you reflected on it, you discussed it with your friends? Like how how do you feel that has change or shifted over this period of time
2: for for me yeah
1: for you and and and, and perhaps you're like in in conversation (laughs) again because as you reflect on it as you share it you have again folks who are are coming in that from different experiences um so Mm -hmm. i was wondering about that just just for our audience to kind of see if they could grasp that idea
2: Mm -hmm. i think Originally, the way I told the story, the way that I related to the events of the counter story were about the um, the more tangible, and then she followed us. The, can I take your picture? Or I think it'll be good for my clients to see that people like you are, are out and about. As my attention, as my emphasis in the in the recalling, relating and telling of the story, especially within or across different groups, because um, I tell it in my classes all the time. I became much more interested in the how does the story foreground multiple competing feelings, senses of the world of disability, of non-disability, uh, able-bodiedness, if you want. And then how do we feel and think what happened and what slash how it is remembered to this day?
3: I don't know if this is useful, Ryan, but and I don't know which of the experiences happened first. But perhaps if you tell the other story, <laughs> yes. um, and your experience, perhaps I have a, an assumption, and this is probably just my assumption without any reason. But I, I have a feeling that this second counter story happened later than the first one. It did, uh, but I don't know if if that's true. But I I feel like in some ways, the experiencing of this second counter story Mm. may be helpful in terms of complementing the atmospheric events uh, and in terms of how they unfold when ableism happens, when ableism tends to to be an eventful thing for, for somebody who is disabled. And has to be the target of these so this relational targeting thing that we were talking about.
2: Yeah, and you also said that you all, you came this close to saying eventful event, which is perfect. I write about it, and it's as far as I know, it was articulated by uh, Francois Raffoul in his uh, 2020 book, Right um, Thinking the Event. So yes, there is a second story that I write about. Honestly, it happened about four or five months after this, this initial one. And then, so I was out with one of my new work colleagues at EWU and his wife and children. We were having dinner at Costco because they have hot they have cheap hot dogs. Good and, and Yeah, and um, now I, I do have to say that I was and am visibly disabled, whatever that means. And they are not. And in fact, they are not, and don't identify as disabled. They identify if they were asked as non-disabled or able-bodied, able-minded. And we were sitting, I mean, the four of us sitting at, you know, a picnic table inside Costco, eating our hot dogs and talking about whatever we were talking about. All of us, and I had probably had my cane folded up on the table or next to me or something like that. And suddenly I felt a tap on my shoulder I look over, and there's a stranger, a woman I've never met, and she says, something is telling me I have to pray for you. Can I? Now, this wasn't my first uh, rodeo, so to speak. This wasn't the first time this kind of thing had happened. And I had just enough chutzpah to say, you've got 30 seconds. And she said some words about me and hoping that I or my vision would be cured or healed and um, ended her, her prayer and walked away. And I was like, okay, I was eager to get back to the conversation and dinner. And so I said, okay, well, anyway, that, what were we talking about? And my friend's wife wouldn't let that happen. She said, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. What just happened? And I said, oh, well, you know, somebody prayed for me. Hmm. Anyway, anyway. And she says, no, 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 wait a minute. Does that happen to you? Does that happen a lot? And, And I said, well, you know, not every single day, but it happens enough that I recognize it. And a lot of disabled people that I know and have read, that's part of everyday life, or that's part of what it means and how it feels to be disabled. These sorts of things happen can happen, do happen. And I told her, I said, you know, honestly, like, I mean, we're friends, but I'm I'm really struck that you don't know that. Like, I'm not offended, I'm not upset, I'm not bothered, but I notice that you can't relate to this at all. And that's interesting. Can we really be friends? Are we really friends? And we are, and we can be, but to me, you know, there as well. I think we could approach the situation and say, okay, let's find ableism here. Well, it's everywhere. We can track it, we can trace it, we can feel it and see how it impacts the feelings of the moment. But also, and especially because not everybody that was involved in that encounter experienced it or related to what was happening the same way. That's interesting and makes the question of ableism more complicated right? Because if it is a matter of relation and relational ontology, which it is, how does it matter that it is related to so differently, not just everyday moments where we're not thinking about it or feeling about it, uh, but as well as within moments when when we are thinking about it and feeling it.
3: For, for me, this, this counter story is, is very interesting because you have... Non-disabled bystanders wanting to know what happened, and I, I must say that this is something that has happened to me in landmark uh, outside the United States. so it's not it's not an American phenomenon. It tends to be exported. I don't know about you know our audience. there may be uh, people listening to us or watching us from other parts of the world where this kind of praying. Is not part of their religious tradition, but it's it's part of a fundamentalist tradition within certain Christian denominations
2: mm-hmm. in the
3: United States, and it tends to be exported to many mission areas, quote unquote, that that these denominations colonize uh, outside the United States. So it's it's a very interesting, well-intended, uh, for sure, but it's it's a very um, cure-focused kind of practice. And again, it it, it clearly demonstrates this relational targeting idea where where you have, you know, these people are out and around just just looking for targets uh, of their prayers. And it's Mm. it's basically a way you'd write to to find uh, the healing power within them and in their faith.